Tim Ferriss again, the producer of this audiobook series. Pardon the interruption, but what follows is a very strange letter. Seneca is usually concrete, relatable, and very tactical. For most people, letter 58, titled On Being, is none of these things. Still, it's here because we want you to have the complete experience, of course, just be forewarned that Seneca goes a bit off the reservation. I found it kind of jarring and wished I'd had a warning, hence the short note. You might think of letter 58 as Seneca on mushrooms, and not the culinary kind. If not your thing, feel free to skip to letter 59. That's what I usually do. And there's another abstract letter coming up in letter 65, titled On the First Cause. Please feel free to skip that letter, or any letter for that matter, that doesn't strike your fancy. With all that said, enjoy. Letter 62. On Good Company. We are deceived by those who would have us believe that a multitude of affairs blocks their pursuit of liberal studies. They make a pretense of their engagements and multiply them when their engagements are merely with themselves. As for me, Lucilius, my time is free. It is indeed free, and wherever I am, I am master of myself. For I do not surrender myself to my affairs, but loan myself to them and I do not hunt out excuses for wasting my time. And wherever I am situated, I carry on my own meditations and ponder in my mind some wholesome thought. When I give myself to my friends, I do not withdraw from my own company, nor do I linger with those who are associated with me through some special occasion or some case which arises from my official position. But I spend my time in the company of all the best, no matter in what lands they may have lived or in what age, I let my thoughts fly to them. Demetrius, for instance, the best of men, I take about with me, and, leaving the wearers of purple and fine linen, I talk with him, half-naked as he is, and hold him in high esteem. Why should I not hold him in high esteem? I have found that he lacks nothing. It is in the power of any man, to despise all things, but of no man to possess all things. The shortest cut to riches is to despise riches. Our friend Demetrius, however, lives not merely as if he has learned to despise all things, but as if he has handed them over for others to possess. Farewell. Letter 61 on meeting death cheerfully. Let us cease to desire that which we have been desiring. I, at least, am doing this. In my old age I have ceased to desire what I desired when a boy. To this single end my days and my nights are past. This is my task, this is the object of my thoughts, to put an end to my chronic ills. I am endeavoring to live every day as if it were a complete life. I do not indeed snatch it up as if it were my last. I do regard it, however, as if it might even be my last. The present letter is written to you with this in mind, as if death were about to call me away in the very act of writing. I am ready to depart, and I shall enjoy life just because I am not over-anxious as to the future date of my departure. Before I became old, I tried to live well. Now that I am old, I shall try to die well. But dying well means dying gladly, 
see to it that you never do anything unwillingly. That which is bound to be a necessity if you rebel is not a necessity if you desire it. This is what I mean. He who takes his orders gladly escapes the bitterest part of slavery, doing what one does not want to do. The man who does something under orders is not unhappy. He is unhappy who does something against his will. Let us therefore so set our minds in order that we may desire whatever is demanded of us by circumstances, and above all, that we may reflect upon our end without sadness. We must make ready for death before we make ready for life. Life is well enough furnished, but we are too greedy with regard to its furnishings. Something always seems to us lacking, and will always seem lacking. To have lived long enough depends neither upon our years, nor upon our days, but upon our minds. I have lived, my dear Lucilius, long enough. I have had my fill. I await death. Farewell. Letter 60 On Harmful Prayers I file a complaint. I enter a suit. I am angry. Do you still desire what your nurse, your guardian, or your mother have prayed for you in your behalf? Do you not yet understand what evil they prayed for? Alas, how hostile to us are the wishes of our own folk, and they are all the more hostile in proportion as they are more completely fulfilled. It is no surprise to me at my age that nothing but evil attends us from our early youth, for we have grown up amid the curses invoked by our parents, and may the gods give ear to our cry also, uttered in our own behalf, one which asks no favors. How long shall we go on making demands upon the gods, as if we were still unable to support ourselves? How long shall we continue to fill with grain the marketplaces of our great cities, how long must the people gather it in for us? How long shall many ships convey the requisites for a single meal, bringing them from no single sea? The bull is filled when he feeds over a few acres, and one forest is large enough for a herd of elephants. Man, however, draws sustenance both from the earth and from the sea. What then? Did nature give us bellies so insatiable when she gave us these puny bodies? that we should outdo the hugest and most voracious animals in greed? Not at all. How small is the amount which will satisfy nature? A very little will send her away contented. It is not the natural hunger of our bellies that costs us dear, but our solicitous cravings. Therefore those who, as Sallust puts it, hearken to their bellies, should be numbered among the animals and not among men and certain men indeed should be numbered not even among the animals, but among the dead. He really lives who is made use of by many. He really lives who makes use of himself. Those men, however, who creep into a hole and grow torpid are no better off in their homes than if they were in their tombs. Right there on the marble lintel of the house of such a man, you may inscribe his name for he has died before he is dead. Farewell.
Letter 54 On Asthma and Death My ill health had allowed me a long furlough, when suddenly it resumed the attack. What kind of ill health, you say? And you surely have a right to ask, for it is true that no kind is unknown to me. But I have been consigned, so to speak, to one special ailment. I do not know why I should call it by its Greek name, for it is well enough described as shortness of breath. Its attack is of very brief duration, like that of a squall at sea. It usually ends within an hour. Who indeed could breathe his last for long? I have passed through all the ills and dangers of the flesh, but nothing seems to me more troublesome than this. And naturally so, for anything else may be called illness. But this is a sort of continued last gasp. Hence, physicians call it practicing how to die. For some day the breath will succeed in doing what it has so often essayed. Do you think I am writing this letter in a merry spirit, just because I have escaped? It would be absurd to take delight in such supposed restoration to health, as it would be for a defendant to imagine that he had won his case when he had succeeded in postponing his trial. Yet in the midst of my difficult breathing I never cease to rest secure in cheerful and brave thoughts. What? I say to myself, does death so often test me? Let it do so. I myself have for a long time tested death. When? you ask. Before I was born. Death is non-existence, and I already know what that means. What was before me will happen again after me. If there is any suffering in this state, there must have been such suffering also in the past, before we entered the light of day. As a matter of fact, however, we felt no discomfort then. And I ask you, would you not say that one was the greatest of fools who believed that a lamp was worse off when it was extinguished than before it was lighted? We mortals also are lighted and extinguished. The period of suffering comes in between, but on either side there is a deep peace. For unless I am very much mistaken, my dear Lucilius, we go astray in thinking that death only follows, when in reality it has both preceded us and will in turn follow us. Whatever condition existed before our birth is death. For what does it matter whether you do not begin at all, or whether you leave off inasmuch as the result of both these states is non-existence? I have never ceased to encourage myself with cheering counsels of this kind, silently, of course, since I had not the power to speak. Then, little by little, the shortness of breath, already reduced to a sort of panting, came on at greater intervals, then slowed down, and finally stopped. Even by this time, although the gasping has ceased, the breath does not come and go normally. I still feel a sort of hesitation and delay in breathing. Let it be as it pleases, provided there be no sigh from the soul. Accept this assurance from me. I shall never be frightened when the last hour comes. I am already prepared, and do not plan a whole day ahead. 
But do you praise and imitate the man whom it does not irk to die, though he takes pleasure in living? For what virtue is there in going away, when you are thrust out? And yet there is virtue even in this. I am indeed thrust out, but it is as if I were going away willingly. For that reason, the wise man can never be thrust out, because that would mean removal from a place which he was unwilling to leave. And the wise man does nothing unwillingly. He escapes necessity because he wills to do what necessity is about to force upon him. Farewell. Letter 57 On the Trials of Travel When it was time for me to return to Naples from Baiae, I easily persuaded myself that a storm was raging, that I might avoid another trip by sea. And yet the road was so deep in mud all the way that I may be thought none the less to have made a voyage. On that day I had to endure the full fate of an athlete, the anointing with which we began was followed by the sand sprinkle in the Naples tunnel. No place could be longer than that prison. Nothing could be dimmer than those torches which enabled us not to see amid the darkness, but to see the darkness. But even supposing that there was light in the place, the dust, which is an oppressive and disagreeable thing even in the open air, would destroy the light. How much worse the dust is there when it rolls back upon itself and, being shut in without ventilation, blows back in the faces of those who set it going. So we endured two inconveniences at the same time, and they were diametrically different. We struggled both with mud and with dust on the same road and on the same day. The gloom, however, furnished me with some food for thought. I felt a certain mental thrill and a transformation unaccompanied by fear due to the novelty and the unpleasantness of an unusual occurrence. Of course, I am not speaking to you of myself at this point, because I am far from being a perfect person, or even a man of middling qualities. I refer to one over whom fortune has lost her control. Even such a man's mind will be smitten with a thrill, and he will change color. For there are certain emotions, my dear Lucilius, which no courage can avoid. Nature reminds courage how perishable a thing it is, and so he will contract his brow when the prospect is forbidding, will shudder at sudden apparitions, and will become dizzy when he stands at the edge of a high precipice and looks down. This is not fear. It is a natural feeling which reason cannot rout. That is why certain brave men, most willing to shed their own blood, cannot bear to see the blood of others. Some persons collapse and faint at the sight of a freshly inflicted wound. Others are affected similarly on handling or viewing an old wound which is festering. And others meet the sword stroke more readily than they see it dealt. Accordingly, as I said, I experienced a certain transformation, though it could not be called confusion. Then at the first glimpse of restored daylight, my good spirits returned without forethought or command, and I began to muse and think how foolish we are to fear certain objects to a greater or less degree, since all of them end in the same way. For what difference does it make whether a watchtower 
or a mountain crashes down upon us. No difference at all, you will find. Nevertheless, there will be some men who fear the latter mishap to a greater degree, though both accidents are equally deadly. So true it is that fear looks not to the effect, but to the cause of the effect. Do you suppose that I am now referring to the Stoics, who hold that the soul of a man crushed by a great weight cannot abide and is scattered forthwith because it has not had a free opportunity to depart? That is not what I am doing. Those who think thus are, in my opinion, wrong. Just as fire cannot be crushed out, since it will escape round the edges of the body which overwhelms it, just as the air cannot be damaged by lashes or blows, or even cut into, but flows back about the object to which it gives place. Similarly, the soul, which consists of the subtlest particles, cannot be arrested or destroyed inside the body, but, by virtue of its delicate substance, it will rather escape through the very object by which it is being crushed. Just as lightning, no matter how widely it strikes and flashes, makes its return through a narrow opening, so the soul, which is still subtler than fire, has a way of escape through any part of the body. We therefore come to this question, whether the soul can be immortal. But be sure of this, if the soul survives the body after the body is crushed, the soul can in no ways be crushed out, precisely because it does not perish for the rule of immortality never admits of exceptions, and nothing can harm that which is everlasting. Farewell. Letter 55 On Vatya's Villa I have just returned from a ride in my litter, and I am as weary as if I had walked the distance instead of being seated. Even to be carried for any length of time is hard work, perhaps all the more so, because it is an unnatural exercise, for nature gave us legs with which to do our own walking, and eyes with which to do our own seeing. Our luxuries have condemned us to weakness. We have ceased to be able to do that which we have long declined to do. Nevertheless, I found it necessary to give my body a shaking up in order that the bile which had gathered in my throat, if that was my trouble, might be shaken out, or if the very breath within me had become, for some reason, too thick, that the jolting, which I have felt was a good thing for me, might make it thinner. So I insisted on being carried longer than usual along an attractive beach, which bends between Cumae and Servilius Vatia's country house, shut in by the sea on one side and the lake on the other, just like a narrow path. It was packed firm underfoot because of a recent storm, since, as you know, the waves, when they beat upon the beach hard and fast, level it out, but a continuous period of fair weather loosens it when the sand, which is kept firm by the water, loses its moisture. As my habit is, I began to look about for something there that might be of service to me when my eyes fell upon the villa which had once belonged to Vatya. So this was the place where that famous Praetorian millionaire passed his old age. He was famed for nothing else than his life of leisure, and he was regarded as lucky only for that reason. 
for whenever men were ruined by their friendship with Asinius Gallus, whenever others were ruined by their hatred of Sejanus, and later by their intimacy with him, for it was no more dangerous to have offended him than to have loved him, people used to cry out, O oh, Vatya, you alone know how to live. But what he knew was how to hide, not how to live. And it makes a great deal of difference whether your life be one of leisure or one of idleness. So I never drove past his country place during Vatya's lifetime without saying to myself, Here lies Vatya. But, my dear Lucilius, philosophy is a thing of holiness, something to be worshipped, so much so that the very counterfeit pleases. For the mass of mankind consider that a person is at leisure who has withdrawn from society, is free from care, self-sufficient, and lives for himself. But these privileges can be the reward only of the wise man. Does he who is a victim of anxiety know how to live for himself? What? Does he even know, and that is of first importance, how to live at all? For the man who has fled from affairs and from men, who has been banished to seclusion by the unhappiness which his own desires have brought upon him, who cannot see his neighbor more happy than himself, who through fear has taken to concealment like a frightened and sluggish animal, this person is not living for himself. He is living for his belly, his sleep, and his lust, and that is the most shameful thing in the world. He who lives for no one does not necessarily live for himself. Nevertheless, there is so much steadfastness and adherence to one's purpose that even sluggishness, if stubbornly maintained, assumes an air of authority with us. I could not describe the villa accurately for I am familiar only with the front of the house and with the parts which are in public view and can be seen by the mere passer-by. There are two grottos, which cost a great deal of labor, as big as the most spacious hall, made by hand. One of these does not admit the rays of the sun, while the other keeps them until the sun sets. There is also a stream running through a grove of plane trees, which draws for its supply both on the sea and on Lake Acheron. It intersects the grove just like a raceway, and is large enough to support fish, although its waters are continually being drawn off. When the sea is calm, however, they do not use the stream, only touching the well-stocked waters when the storms give the fishermen a forced holiday. But the most convenient thing about the villa is the fact that Baiae is next door. It is free from all the inconveniences of that resort, and yet enjoys its pleasures. I myself understand these attractions, and I believe that it is a villa suited to every season of the year. It fronts the west wind, which it intercepts in such a way that Baiae is denied it. So it seems that Vatya was no fool when he selected this place as the best in which to spend his leisure when it was already unfruitful and decrepit. The place where one lives, however, can contribute little towards tranquility. It is the mind which must make everything agreeable to itself. I have seen men despondent in a gay and lovely villa, and I have seen them to all appearance full of business in the midst of a solitude. For this reason, you should not refuse to believe that your life is well placed, merely because you are not now in Campania, 
But why are you not there? Just let your thoughts travel, even to this place. You may hold converse with your friends when they are absent, and indeed as often as you wish and for as long as you wish. For we enjoy this, the greatest of pleasures, all the more when we are absent from one another. For the presence of friends makes us fastidious, and because we can at any time talk or sit together, when once we have parted we give not a thought to those whom we have just beheld. And we ought to bear the absence of friends cheerfully, just because everyone is bound to be often absent from his friends even when they are present. Include among such cases, in the first place, the nights spent apart, then the different engagements which each of two friends has, then the private studies of each, and their excursions into the country, and you will see that foreign travel does not rob us of much. A friend should be retained in the spirit. Such a friend can never be absent. He can see every day whomsoever he desires to see. I would therefore have you share your studies with me, your meals, and your walks. We should be living within two narrow limits, if anything were barred to our thoughts. I see you, my dear Lucilius, and at this very moment I hear you. I am with you to such an extent that I hesitate whether I should not begin to write you notes instead of letters. Farewell. Letter 56 On Quiet and Study Beshrew me if I think anything more requisite than silence for a man who secludes himself in order to study. Imagine what a variety of noises reverberates about my ears. I have lodgings right over a bathing establishment. So picture to yourself the assortment of sounds which are strong enough to make me hate my very powers of hearing. When your strenuous gentleman, for example, is exercising himself by flourishing leaden weights, when he is working hard, or else pretends to be working hard, I can hear him grunt, and whenever he releases his imprisoned breath, I can hear him panting and wheezy in high-pitched tones. Or perhaps I notice some lazy fellow, content with a cheap rub-down, and hear the crack of the pummeling hand on his shoulder varying in sound according as the hand is laid on flat or hollow. Then, perhaps a professional comes along, shouting out the score. That is the finishing touch. Add to this the arresting of an occasional roisterer or pickpocket, the racket of the man who always likes to hear his own voice in the bathroom, or the enthusiast who plunges into the swimming tank with unconscionable noise and splashing. Besides all those whose voices, if nothing else, are good, imagine the hair-plucker with his penetrating shrill voice, for purposes of advertisement, continually giving it vent and never holding his tongue, except when he is plucking the armpits and making his victim yell instead. Then the cake-seller with his varied cries, the sausage-man, the confectioner, and all the vendors of food hawking their wares, each with his own distinctive intonation. So you say, What iron nerves or deadened ears you must have, if your mind can hold out amid so many noises, so various and so discordant, when our friend Chrysippus is brought to his death by the continual good morrows that greet him. But I assure you, 
that this racket means no more to me than the sound of waves or falling water. Although you will remind me that a certain tribe once moved their city merely because they could not endure the din of a Nile cataract. Words seem to distract me more than noises. For words demand attention, but noises merely fill the ears and beat upon them. Among the sounds that din round me without distracting, I include passing carriages, a machinist in the same block, a saw sharpener nearby, or some fellow who is demonstrating with little pipes and flutes at the trickling fountain, shouting rather than singing. Furthermore, an intermittent noise upsets me more than a steady one, but by this time I have toughened my nerves against all that sort of thing, so that I can endure even a bosun marking the time in high-pitched tones for his crew. For I force my mind to concentrate, and can keep it from straying to things outside itself. All outdoors may be bedlam, provided that there is no disturbance within, provided that fear is not wrangling with desire in my breast, provided that meanness and lavishness are not at odds, one harassing the other. For of what benefit is a quiet neighborhood if our emotions are in an uproar? Twas night, and all the world was lulled to rest. This is not true, for no real rest can be found when reason has not done the lulling. Night brings our troubles to the light rather than banishes them. It merely changes the form of our worries. For even when we seek slumber, our sleepless moments are as harassing as the daytime. Real tranquility is the state reached by an unperverted mind when it is relaxed. Think of the unfortunate man who courts sleep by surrendering his spacious mansion to silence, who, that his ear may be disturbed by no sound, bids the whole retinue of his slaves be quiet, and that whoever approaches him shall walk on tiptoe. He tosses from this side to that and seeks a fitful slumber amid his frettings. He complains that he has heard sounds when he has not heard them at all. The reason, you ask? His soul's in an uproar. It must be soothed and its rebellious murmuring checked. You need not suppose that the soul is at peace when the body is still. Sometimes quiet means disquiet. We must therefore rouse ourselves to action, and busy ourselves with interests that are good, as often as we are in the grasp of an uncontrollable sluggishness. Great generals, when they see that their men are mutinous, check them by some sort of labor, or keep them busy with small forays. The much-occupied man has no time for wantonness, and it is an obvious commonplace that the evils of leisure can be shaken off by hard work. Although people may often have thought that I sought seclusion because I was disgusted with politics and regretted my hapless and thankless position, yet, in the retreat to which apprehension and weariness have driven me, my ambition sometimes develops afresh. For it is not because my ambition was rooted out that it has abated, but because it was wearied, or perhaps even put out of temper, by the failure of its plans. And so with luxury also, which sometimes seems to have departed, and then, when we have made a profession of frugality, begins to fret us and, amid our economies, seeks the pleasures which we have merely left but not condemned. Indeed, the more stealthily it comes, 
the greater is its force. For all unconcealed vices are less serious. A disease also is farther on the road to being cured when it breaks forth from concealment and manifests its power. So with greed, ambition, and the other evils of the mind. You may be sure that they do most harm when they are hidden behind a pretense of soundness. Men think that we are in retirement, and yet we are not. For if we have sincerely retired, and have sounded the signal for retreat, and have scorned outward attractions, then, as I remarked above, no outward thing will distract us. No music of men or of birds can interrupt good thoughts when they have once become steadfast and sure. The mind which starts at words or at chance sounds is unstable and is not yet withdrawn into itself. It contains within itself an element of anxiety and rooted fear, and this makes one a prey to care, as our Virgil says. I, whom of yore no dart could cause to flee, nor Greeks with crowded lines of infantry, now shake at every sound and fear the air, both for my child and for the load I bear. This man in his first state is wise. He blenches neither at the brandished spear, nor at the clashing armor of the serried foe, nor at the din of the stricken city. This man in his second state lacks knowledge fearing for his own concerns. He pales at every sound. Any cry is taken for the battle shout and overthrows him. The slightest disturbance renders him breathless with fear. It is the load that makes him afraid. Select anyone you please from among your favorites of fortune, trailing their many responsibilities, carrying their many burdens, and you will behold a picture of Virgil's hero, fearing both for his child and for the load he bears. You may therefore be sure that you are at peace with yourself when no noise readies you, when no word shakes you out of yourself, whether it be of flattery or of threat, or merely an empty sound buzzing about you with unmeaning din. What then, you say? Is it not sometimes a simpler matter just to avoid the uproar? I admit this. Accordingly, I shall change from my present quarters. I merely wish to test myself and to give myself practice. Why need I be tormented any longer? When Ulysses found so simple a cure for his comrades, even against the songs of the sirens. Farewell. Letter 63 On Grief for Lost Friends I am grieved to hear that your friend Flaccus is dead, but I would not have you sorrow more than is fitting. That you should not mourn at all, I shall hardly dare to insist, and yet I know that it is the better way. But what man will ever be so blessed with that ideal steadfastness of soul, unless he has already risen far above the reach of fortune? Even such a man will be stung by an event like this, but it will be only a sting. We, however, may be forgiven for bursting into tears, if only our tears have not flowed to excess, and if we have checked them by our own efforts. Let not the eyes be dry when we have lost a friend, nor let them overflow. We may weep, but we must not wail. 
Do you think that the law which I lay down for you is harsh, when the greatest of Greek poets has extended the privilege of weeping to one day only, in the lines where he tells us that even Niobe took thought of food? Do you wish to know the reason for lamentations and excessive weeping? It is because we seek the proofs of our bereavement in our tears, and do not give way to sorrow, but merely parade it. No man goes into mourning for his own sake. Shame on our ill-timed folly. There is an element of self-seeking even in our sorrow. What? you say. Am I to forget my friend? It is surely a short-lived memory that you vouchsafe to him, if it is to endure only as long as your grief. Presently that brow of yours will be smoothed out in laughter by some circumstance, however casual. It is to a time no more distant than this that I put off the soothing of every regret, the quieting of even the bitterest grief. As soon as you cease to observe yourself, the picture of sorrow which you have contemplated will fade away. At present you are keeping watch over your own suffering, but even while you keep watch it slips away from you, and the sharper it is, the more speedily it comes to an end. Let us see to it that the recollection of those whom we have lost becomes a pleasant memory to us. No man reverts with pleasure to any subject which he will not be able to reflect upon without pain. So, too, it cannot but be that the names of those whom we have loved and lost come back to us with a sort of sting. But there is a pleasure even in this sting. For as my friend Atalus used to say, The remembrance of lost friends is pleasant, in the same way that certain fruits have an agreeably acid taste, or as in extremely old wines, it is their very bitterness that pleases us. Indeed, after a certain lapse of time, every thought that gave pain is quenched, and the pleasure comes to us unalloyed. If we take the word of Attalus for it. To think of friends who are alive and well is like enjoying a meal of cakes and honey. The recollection of friends who have passed away gives a pleasure that is not without a touch of bitterness. Yet who will deny that even these things, which are bitter and contain an element of sourness, do serve to arouse the stomach? For my part, I do not agree with him. To me, the thought of my dead friends is sweet and appealing, for I have had them as if I should one day lose them. I have lost them, as if I have them still. Therefore, Lucilius, act as befits your own serenity of mind, and cease to put a wrong interpretation on the gifts of fortune. Fortune has taken away, but fortune has given. Let us greedily enjoy our friends, because we do not know how long this privilege will be ours. Let us think how often we shall leave them when we go upon distant journeys and how often we shall fail to see them when we tarry together in the same place. We shall thus understand that we have lost too much of their time while they were alive. But will you tolerate men who are most careless of their friends, and then mourn them most abjectly, and do not love anyone unless they have lost him? The reason why they lament too unrestrainedly at such times is that they are afraid lest men doubt whether they really have loved. All too late they seek for proofs of their emotions. 
if we have other friends, we surely deserve ill at their hands and think ill of them, if they are of so little account that they fail to console us for the loss of one. If, on the other hand, we have no other friends, we have injured ourselves more than fortune has injured us, since fortune has robbed us of one friend, but we have robbed ourselves of every friend whom we have failed to make. Again, he who has been unable to love more than one has had none too much love even for that one. If a man who has lost his one and only tunic through robbery chooses to bewail his plight rather than look about him for some way to escape the cold or for something with which to cover his shoulders, would you not think him an utter fool? You have buried one whom you loved. Look about for someone to love. It is better to replace your friend than to weep for him. What I am about to add is, I know, a very hackneyed remark, but I shall not omit it simply because it is a common phrase. A man ends his grief by the mere passing of time, even if he has not ended it of his own accord. But the most shameful cure for sorrow, in the case of a sensible man, is to grow weary of sorrowing. I should prefer you to abandon grief, rather than have grief abandon you. And you should stop grieving as soon as possible, since, even if you wish to do so, it is impossible to keep it up for a long time. Our forefathers have enacted that, in the case of women, a year should be the limit for mourning, not that they needed to mourn for so long, but that they should mourn no longer. In the case of men, no rules are laid down, because to mourn at all is not regarded as honorable. For all that, what woman can you show me, of all the pathetic females that could scarcely be dragged away from the funeral pile or torn from the corpse, whose tears have lasted a whole month? Nothing becomes offensive so quickly as grief. When fresh, it finds someone to console it and attracts one or another to itself. But after becoming chronic, it is ridiculed and rightly, for it is either assumed or foolish. He who writes these words to you is no other than I, who wept so excessively for my dear friend Anais Serenus that, in spite of my wishes, I must be included among the examples of men who have been overcome by grief. Today, however, I condemn this act of mine, and I understand that the reason why I lamented so greatly was chiefly that I had never imagined it possible for his death to precede mine. The only thought which occurred to my mind was that he was the younger and much younger too, as if the fates kept to the order of our ages. Therefore, let us continually think as much about our own mortality as about that of all those we love. In former days, I ought to have said, my friend Serenus is younger than I, but what does that matter? He would naturally die after me, but he may precede me. It was just because I did not do this that I was unprepared when fortune dealt me the sudden blow. Now is the time for you to reflect not only that all things are mortal, but also that their mortality is subject to no fixed law. Whatever can happen 
at any time can happen today. Let us therefore reflect, my beloved Lucilius, that we shall soon come to the goal which this friend, to our own sorrow, has reached. And perhaps, if only the tale told by wise men is true, and there is a born to welcome us, then he whom we think we have lost has only been sent on ahead. Farewell. Letter 59 On Pleasure and Joy I received great pleasure from your letter. Kindly allow me to use these words in their everyday meaning without insisting upon their stoic import. For we Stoics hold that pleasure is a vice. Very likely it is a vice, but we are accustomed to use the word when we wish to indicate a happy state of mind. I am aware that if we test words by our formula, even pleasure is a thing of ill repute, and joy can be attained only by the wise. For joy is an elation of spirit, of a spirit which trusts in the goodness and truth of its own possessions. The common usage, however, is that we derive great joy from a friend's position as counsel, or from his marriage, or from the birth of his child. But these events, so far from being matters of joy, are more often the beginnings of sorrow to come. No, it is a characteristic of real joy that it never ceases and never changes into its opposite. Accordingly, when our Virgil speaks of the evil joys of the mind. His words are eloquent, but not strictly appropriate, for no joy can be evil. He has given the name joy to pleasures, and has thus expressed his meaning, for he has conveyed the idea that men take delight in their own evil. Nevertheless, I was not wrong in saying that I received great pleasure from your letter for although an ignorant man may derive joy if the cause be an honorable one, yet, since his emotion is wayward and is likely soon to take another direction, I call it pleasure, for it is inspired by an opinion concerning a spurious good. It exceeds control and is carried to excess. But, to return to the subject, let me tell you what delighted me in your letter. You have your words under control. You are not carried away by your language, or born beyond the limits which you have determined upon. Many writers are tempted by the charm of some alluring phrase to some topic other than that which they had set themselves to discuss. But this has not been so in your case. All your words are compact and suited to the subject. You say all that you wish, and you mean still more than you say. This is a proof of the importance of your subject matter showing that your mind, as well as your words, contains nothing superfluous or bombastic. I do, however, find some metaphors, not indeed daring ones, but the kind which have stood the test of use. I find similes also. Of course, if anyone forbids us to use them, maintaining that poets alone have that privilege, he has not, apparently, read any of our ancient prose writers who had not yet learned to affect a style that should win applause. For those writers, whose eloquence was simple and directed only towards proving their case, are full of comparisons. And I think that these are necessary, 
not for the same reason which makes them necessary for the poets, but in order that they may serve as props to our feebleness, to bring both speaker and listener face to face with the subject under discussion. For example, I am at this very moment reading Sextius. He is a keen man and a philosopher who, though he writes in Greek, has the Roman standard of ethics. One of his similes appealed especially to me, that of an army marching in hollow square, in a place where the enemy might be expected to appear from any quarter ready for battle. This, said he, is just what the wise man ought to do. He should have all his fighting qualities deployed on every side, so that wherever the attack threatens, there his supports may be ready to hand, and may obey the captain's command without confusion. This is what we notice in armies which serve under great leaders. We see how all the troops simultaneously understand their general's orders, since they are so arranged that a signal given by one man passes down the ranks of cavalry and infantry at the same moment. This, he declares, is still more necessary for men like ourselves, for soldiers have often feared an enemy without reason, and the march which they thought most dangerous has in fact been most secure. But folly brings no repose. Fear haunts it both in the van and in the rear of the column, and both flanks are in a panic. Folly is pursued and confronted by peril. It blenches at everything. It is unprepared. It is frightened even by auxiliary troops. But the wise man is fortified against all inroads. He is alert. He will not retreat before the attack of poverty, or of sorrow, or of disgrace, or of pain. He will walk undaunted both against them and among them. We human beings are fettered and weakened by many vices. We have wallowed in them for a long time, and it is hard for us to be cleansed. We are not merely defiled, we are dyed by them. But to refrain from passing from one figure to another, I will raise this question, which I often consider in my own heart. Why is it that folly holds us with such an insistent grasp? It is primarily because we do not combat it strongly enough, because we do not struggle toward salvation with all our might, secondly, because we do not put sufficient trust in the discoveries of the wise, and do not drink in their words with open hearts. We approach this great problem in too trifling a spirit. But how can a man learn, in the struggle against his vices, an amount that is enough, if the time which he gives to learning is only the amount left over from his vices? None of us goes deep below the surface. We skim the top only, and we regard the smattering of time spent in the search for wisdom as enough and to spare for a busy man. What hinders us most of all is that we are too readily satisfied with ourselves. If we meet with someone who calls us good men, or sensible men, or holy men, we see ourselves in his description. Not content with praise and moderation, we accept everything that shameless flattery heaps upon us, as if it were our due. We agree with those who declare us to be the best and wisest of men, although we know that they are given to much lying. And we are so self-complacent that we desire praise for certain actions when we are especially addicted to the very opposite. Yonder person hears himself called most gentle when he is inflicting tortures, or most generous 
when he is engaged in looting, or most temperate when he is in the midst of drunkenness and lust. Thus it follows that we are unwilling to be reformed, just because we believe ourselves to be the best of men. Alexander was roaming as far as India, ravaging tribes that were but little known even to their neighbors. During the blockade of a certain city, while he was reconnoitering the walls and hunting for the weakest spot in the fortifications, he was wounded by an arrow. Nevertheless, he long continued the siege, intent on finishing what he had begun. The pain of his wound, however, as the surface became dry and as the flow of blood was checked, increased. His leg gradually became numb as he sat his horse, and finally, when he was forced to withdraw, he exclaimed, All men swear that I am the son of Jupiter, but this wound cries out that I am mortal. Let us also act in the same way. Each man, according to his lot in life, is stultified by flattery. We should say to him who flatters us, You call me a man of sense, but I understand how many of the things which I crave are useless, and how many of the things which I desire will do me harm. I have not even the knowledge, which satiety teaches to animals, of what should be the measure of my food or my drink. I do not yet know how much I can hold. I shall now show you how you may know that you are not wise. The wise man is joyful, happy, and calm, unshaken. He lives on a plain with the gods. Now go, question yourself. If you are never downcast, if your mind is not harassed by my apprehension through anticipation of what is to come, if day and night your soul keeps on its even and unswerving course, upright and content with itself, then you have attained to the greatest good that mortals can possess. If, however, you seek pleasures of all kinds in all directions, you must know that you are as far short of wisdom as you are short of joy. Joy is the goal which you desire to reach, but you are wandering from the path if you expect to reach your goal while you are in the midst of riches and official titles. In other words, if you seek joy in the midst of cares, these objects for which you strive so eagerly as if they would give you happiness and pleasure are merely causes of grief. All men of this stamp, I maintain, are pressing on in pursuit of joy, but they do not know where they may obtain a joy that is both great and enduring. One person seeks it in feasting and self-indulgence, another in canvassing for honors and in being surrounded by a throng of clients, another in his mistress, another in idle display of culture and in literature that has no power to heal. All these men are led astray by delights which are deceptive and short-lived, like drunkenness, for example, which pays for a single hour of hilarious madness by a sickness of many days, or like applause and the popularity of enthusiastic approval which are gained and atoned for at the cost of great mental disquietude. Reflect, therefore, on this, that the effect of wisdom is a joy that is unbroken and continuous. The mind of the wise man is like the ultra-lunar firmament. Eternal calm pervades that region. You have, then, a reason for wishing to be wise, if the wise man is never deprived of joy. This joy springs only from the knowledge that you possess the virtues. 
none but the brave, the just, the self-restrained can rejoice. And when you query, what do you mean? Do not the foolish and the wicked also rejoice? I reply, no more than lions who have caught their prey. When men have wearied themselves with wine and lust, when night fails them before their debauch is done, when the pleasures which they have heaped upon a body that is too small to hold them begin to fester, at such times they utter in their wretchedness those lines of Virgil. Thou knowest how, amid false glittering joys, we spent that last of nights. Pleasure lovers spend every night amid false glittering joys, and just as if it were their last. But the joy which comes to the gods, and to those who imitate the gods, is not broken off, nor does it cease. But it would surely cease, were it borrowed from without. Just because it is not in the power of another to bestow, neither is it subject to another's whims. That which fortune has not given, she cannot take away. Farewell. Letter 58 On Being How scant of words our language is, nay, how poverty-stricken, I have not fully understood until today. We happen to be speaking of Plato, and a thousand subjects came up for discussion, which needed names and yet possessed none. And there were certain others which once possessed but have since lost their words because we were too nice about their use. But who can endure to be nice in the midst of poverty? There is an insect called by the Greeks Oestrus, which drives cattle wild and scatters them all over their pasturing grounds. It used to be called a silus in our language, as you may believe on the authority of Virgil. Near Silarus groves and Ecalburnus's shades, of green-clad oak trees flits an insect named a silus by the Romans. In the Greek, the word is rendered oestrus. With a rough and strident sound, it buzzes and drives wild the terror-stricken herds throughout the woods. By which I infer that the word has gone out of use. And, not to keep you waiting too long, there were certain uncompounded words current, like cernere ferro interse, as will be proved again by Virgil. Great heroes, born in various lands, had come to settle matters mutually with the sword. This settling matters we now express by de cernere. The plain word has become obsolete. The ancients used to say uso instead of usero, in conditional clauses. You need not take my word, but you may turn again to Virgil. The other soldiers shall conduct the fight with me where I shall bid. It is not in my purpose to show, by this array of examples, how much time I have wasted on the study of language. I merely wish you to understand how many words that were current in the works of Ennius and Accius have become moldy with age, while even in the case of Virgil, whose works are explored daily, some of his words have been filched away from us. You will say, I suppose, what is the purpose and meaning of this preamble? I shall not keep you in the dark. I desire, if possible, to say the word essentia to you, 
and obtain a favorable hearing. If I cannot do this, I shall risk it, even though it puts you out of humor. I have Cicero as authority for the use of this word, and I regard him as a powerful authority. If you desire a testimony of a later date, I shall cite Fabianus, careful of speech, cultivated, and so polished in style that he will suit even our nice tastes. For what can we do, my dear Lucilius? How otherwise can we find a word for that which the Greeks call osia, something that is indispensable, something that is the natural substratum of everything? I beg you accordingly to allow me to use this word essentia. I shall nevertheless take pains to exercise the privilege which you have granted me with as sparing a hand as possible. Perhaps I shall be content with the mere right. Yet what good will your indulgence do me if, lo and behold, I can in no way express in Latin the meaning of the word which gave me the opportunity to rail at the poverty of our language? And you will condemn our narrow Roman limits even more when you find out that there is a word of one syllable which I cannot translate. What is this? you ask. It is the word own. You think me lacking in facility. You believe that the word is ready to hand, that it might be translated by quad est. I notice, however, a great difference. You are forcing me to render a noun by a verb. But if I must do so, I shall render it by quad est. There are six ways in which Plato expresses this idea, according to a friend of ours, a man of great learning, who mentioned the fact today. And I shall explain all of them to you if I may first point out that there is something called genus and something called species. For the present, however, we are seeking the primary idea of genus on which the others, the different species, depend, which is the source of all classification the term under which universal ideas are embraced. And the idea of genus will be reached if we begin to reckon back from particulars, for in this way we shall be conducted back to the primary notion. Now, man is a species, as Aristotle says, so is horse or dog. We must therefore discover some common bond for all these terms, one which embraces them and holds them subordinate to itself. And what is this? It is animal. And so there begins to be a genus animal, including all these terms, man, horse, and dog. But there are certain things which have life, anima, and yet are not animals. For it is agreed that plants and trees possess life, and that is why we speak of them as living and dying. Therefore the term living things will occupy a still higher place because both animals and plants are included in this category. Certain objects, however, lack life, such as rocks. There will therefore be another term to take precedence over living things, and that is substance. I shall classify substance by saying that all substances are either animate or inanimate. But there is still something superior to substance, for we speak of certain things as possessing substance, and certain things as lacking substance. What, then, will be the term from which these things are derived? It is that to which we lately gave an inappropriate name, that which exists. For by using this term they will be divided into species, so that we can say, 
that which exists either possesses or lacks substance. This, therefore, is what genus is, the primary, original, and, to play upon the word, general. Of course, there are the other genera, but they are special genera, man being, for example, a genus. For man comprises species, by nations, Greek, Roman, Parthian, by colors, white, black, yellow. The term comprises individuals also, Cato, Cicero, Lucretius. So, man falls into the category genus, insofar as it includes many kinds. But insofar as it is subordinate to another term, it falls into the category species. But the genus, that which exists, is general, and has no term superior to it. It is the first term in the classification of things, and all things are included under it. The Stoics would set ahead of this still another genus, even more primary, concerning which I shall immediately speak, after proving that the genus which has been discussed above has rightly been placed first, being, as it is, capable of including everything. I therefore distribute that which exists into these two species, things with and things without substance. There is no third class. And how do I distribute substance? By saying that it is either animate or inanimate. And how do I distribute the animate? By saying, certain things have mind, while others have only life. Or, the idea may be expressed as follows. Certain things have the power of movement, of progress, of change of position, while others are rooted in the ground. They are fed and they grow only through their roots. Again, into what species do I divide animals? They are either perishable or imperishable. Certain of the Stoics regard the primary genus as the something. I shall add the reasons they give for their belief. They say, In the order of nature some things exist, and other things do not exist, and even the things that do not exist are really part of the order of nature. What these are will readily occur to the mind, for example, centaurs, giants, and all other figments of unsound reasoning which have begun to have a definite shape, although they have no bodily consistency. But I now return to the subject which I promised to discuss for you, namely, how it is that Plato divides all existing things in six different ways. The first class of that which exists cannot be grasped by the sight or by the touch or by any of the senses, but it can be grasped by the thought. Any generic conception, such as the generic idea man, does not come within the range of the eyes, but man in particular does, as for example Cicero, Cato. The term animal is not seen. It is grasped by thought alone. A particular animal, however, is seen, for example, a horse, a dog. The second class of things which exist, according to Plato, is that which is prominent and stands out above everything else. This, he says, exists in a preeminent degree. The word poet is used indiscriminately, for this term is applied to all writers of verse. But among the Greeks it has come to be the distinguishing mark of a single individual. You know that Homer is meant when you hear men say the poet. What then is this preeminent being? God, surely. 
one who is greater and more powerful than anyone else. The third class is made up of those things which exist in the proper sense of the term. They are countless in number but are situated beyond our sight. What are these? you ask. They are Plato's own furniture, so to speak. He calls them ideas, and from them all visible things are created, and according to their pattern all things are fashioned. They are immortal, unchangeable, inviolable. And this idea, or rather Plato's conception of it, is as follows. The idea is the everlasting pattern of those things which are created by nature. I shall explain this definition in order to set the subject before you in a clearer light. Suppose that I wish to make a likeness of you. I possess in your own person the pattern of this picture, wherefrom my mind receives a certain outline, which it is to embody in its own handiwork. That outward appearance, then, which gives me instruction and guidance, this pattern for me to imitate, is the idea. Such patterns, therefore, nature possesses an infinite number, of men, fish, trees, according to whose model everything that nature has to create is worked out. In the fourth place, we shall put form, and if you would know what form means, you must pay close attention calling Plato, and not me, to account for the difficulty of the subject. However, we cannot make fine distinctions without encountering difficulties. A moment ago, I made use of the artist as an illustration. When the artist desired to reproduce Virgil in colors, he would gaze upon Virgil himself. The idea was Virgil's outward appearance, and this was the pattern of the intended work. That which the artist draws from this idea and has embodied in his own work is the form. Do you ask me where the difference lies? The former is the pattern, while the latter is the shape taken from the pattern and embodied in the work. Our artist follows the one, but the other he creates. A statue has a certain external appearance. This external appearance of the statue is the form, and the pattern itself has a certain external appearance by gazing upon which the sculpture has fashioned his statue. This is the idea. If you desire a further distinction, I will say that the form is in the artist's work the idea outside his work, and not only outside it, but prior to it. The fifth class is made up of the things which exist in the usual sense of the term. These things are the first that have to do with us. Here we have all such things as men, cattle, and things. In the sixth class goes all that which has a fictitious existence, like void or time. Whatever is concrete to the sight or touch Plato does not include among the things which he believes to be existent in the strict sense of the term, for they are in a state of flux, constantly diminishing or increasing. None of us is the same man in old age that he was in youth, nor the same on the morrow as on the day preceding. Our bodies are borne along like the flowing waters. Every visible object accompanies time in its flight. Of the things which we see, nothing is fixed. Even I myself, as I comment on this change, am changed myself. This is just what Heraclitus says. We go down twice into the same river, and yet into a different river.
for the stream still keeps the same name, but the water has already flowed past. Of course, this is much more evident in rivers than in human beings. Still, we mortals are also carried past in no less speedy a course, and this prompts me to marvel at our madness in cleaving with great affection to such a fleeting thing as the body, and in fearing lest some day we may die, when every instant means the death of our previous condition. Will you not stop fearing, lest that may happen once which really happens every day? So much for man, a substance that flows away and falls, exposed to every influence. But the universe too, immortal as enduring as it is, changes and never remains the same, for though it has within itself all that it has had, it has it in a different way from that in which it has had it. It keeps changing its arrangement. Very well, say you. What good shall I get from all this fine reasoning? None, if you wish me to answer your question. Nevertheless, just as an engraver rests his eyes when they have long been under a strain and are weary, and calls them from their work and feasts them, as the saying is, so we at times should slacken our minds and refresh them with some sort of entertainment. But let even your entertainment be work, and even from these various forms of entertainment you will select, if you have been watchful, something that may prove wholesome. That is my habit, Lucilius. I try to extract and render useful some element from every field of thought, no matter how far removed it may be from philosophy. Now what could be less likely to reform character than the subjects which we have been discussing? And how can I be made a better man by the ideas of Plato? What can I draw from them that will put a check on my appetites? Perhaps the very thought that all these things which minister to our senses, which arouse and excite us, are by Plato denied a place among the things that really exist. Such things are therefore imaginary, and though they for the moment present a certain external appearance, yet they are in no case permanent or substantial. Nonetheless, we crave them, as if they were always to exist, or as if we were always to possess them. We are weak, watery beings standing in the midst of unrealities. Therefore, let us turn our minds to the things that are everlasting. Let us look up to the ideal outlines of all things that flit about on high, and to the God who moves among them, and plans how he may defend from death that which he could not make imperishable, because its substance forbade, and so by reason may overcome the defects of the body. For all things abide, not because they are everlasting, but because they are protected by the care of him who governs all things. But that which was imperishable would need no guardian. The master builder keeps them safe, overcoming the weakness of their fabric by his own power. Let us despise everything that is so little an object of value that it makes us doubt whether it exists at all. Let us at the same time reflect, seeing that providence rescues from its perils the world itself, which is no less mortal than we ourselves, that to some extent 
our petty bodies can be made to tarry longer upon earth by our own providence, if only we acquire the ability to control and check those pleasures whereby the greater portion of mankind perishes. Plato himself, by taking pains, advanced to old age. To be sure, he was the fortunate possessor of a strong and sound body. His very name was given him because of his broad chest. But his strength was much impaired by sea voyages and desperate adventures. Nevertheless, by frugal living, by setting a limit upon all that rouses the appetites, and by painstaking attention to himself, he reached that advanced age in spite of many hindrances. You know, I am sure, that Plato had the good fortune, thanks to his careful living, to die on his birthday, after exactly completing his eighty-first year. For this reason, wise men of the East, who happened to be in Athens at that time, sacrificed to him after his death, believing that his length of days was too full for a mortal man, since he had rounded out the perfect number of nine times nine. I do not doubt that he would have been quite willing to forego a few days from this total, as well as the sacrifice. Frugal living can bring one to old age, and to my mind old age is not to be refused any more than it is to be craved. There is a pleasure in being in one's own company as long as possible, when a man has made himself worth enjoying. The question, therefore, on which we have to record our judgment is, whether one should shrink from extreme old age, and should hasten the end artificially, instead of waiting for it to come. A man who sluggishly awaits his fate is almost a coward, just as he is immoderately given to wine, who drains the jar dry and sucks up even the dregs. But we shall ask this question also. Is the extremity of life the dregs, or is it the clearest and purest part of all, provided only that the mind is unimpaired and the senses still sound, give their support to the spirit, and the body is not worn out and dead before its time? For it makes a great deal of difference whether a man is lengthening his life or his death. But if the body is useless for service, why should one not free the struggling soul? Perhaps one ought to do this a little before the debt is due, lest, when it falls due, he may be unable to perform the act. And since the danger of living in wretchedness is greater than the danger of dying soon, he is a fool who refuses to stake a little time and win a hazard of great gain. Few have lasted through extreme old age to death without impairment, and many have lain inert, making no use of themselves. How much more cruel, then, do you suppose it really is to have lost a portion of your life than to have lost your right to end that life? Do not hear me with reluctance as if my statement applied directly to you, but weigh what I have to say. It is this, that I shall not abandon old age, if old age preserves me intact for myself, and intact as regards the better part of myself, but if old age begins to shatter my mind and to pull its various faculties to pieces, if it leaves me not life, but only the breath of life. 
I shall rush out of a house that is crumbling and tottering. I shall not avoid illness by seeking death, as long as the illness is curable and does not impede my soul. I shall not lay violent hands upon myself just because I am in pain, for death under such circumstances is defeat. But if I find out that the pain must always be endured, I shall depart, not because of the pain, but because it will be a hindrance to me as regards all my reasons for living. He who dies just because he is in pain is a weakling, a coward. But he who lives merely to brave out this pain is a fool. Oh, but I am running on too long, and besides, there is matter here to fill a day. And how can a man end his life if he cannot end a letter? So, farewell. This last word you will read with greater pleasure than all my deadly talk about death. Farewell.